Welcome to Jedi Master's Degree. I'm Biggs. Thank you for joining us for Act 3 of A New Hope. We're going to talk about the last third of the movie as well as the reception that A New Hope got, or Star Wars as it was known in 1977, pretty much up until the prequels. I would like to remind you once again that we are going to talk about the unaltered version, the original version of the Star Wars movies for this original trilogy run. And that is just that we can talk about what they were seeing in the 70s. We will talk about the special editions when we get there in season three. And I'd also like to remind you if you want to reach out, do that at JediMastersDegree at gmail.com. I'd like to hear from you on what you would like to hear from me in season two. Season one's already in the books, but I'm always gathering material for the next season. Okay, so let's start with Act 3 of A New Hope. We start out with Obi-Wan. He's running down a corridor and slows to a stop because he sees his old apprentice, Darth Vader. Obviously used to be Anakin, but we'll get there when we get there. Darth Vader slowly walks down towards him, lightsaber in hand. Obi-Wan draws his lightsaber, and Darth Vader says, I've been waiting for you for a long time, Obi-Wan. We meet again at last. The circle is now complete. When I left you, I was but the learner. Now I am the master. And Obi-Wan says, only a master of evil, Darth. And they immediately start fighting. One thing I like about this introduction is it gives you a sense of this long history between them. All we know about Obi-Wan and Darth Vader really is that Obi-Wan knew Luke's dad and that Darth Vader murdered him. That's what he told Luke, right? And so you can see that they have this history. And then Darth Vader tells him your powers are weak. And Obi-Wan tells him that... You can't win, Darth. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. They clearly don't like each other. Surprise, surprise, since they're trying to cleave each other's heads off with lightsabers. Darth Vader says you should not have come back. And it is interesting when you watch this fight because Prowse clearly does not know how to sword fight. It's just these two old guys waving sticks at each other. And as we talked about in a previous episode... This pissed George Lucas off because David Prowse was supposed to know how to fence. I don't know what good it would have done considering Alan McGinnis doesn't seem to know how to handle a sword either. You gotta figure it captured people's imaginations back in 1977 and lightsaber battles have been pretty badass ever since then. I don't think there's really been a down one after this one. So they cut back to Han and Chewie hiding from some stormtroopers. And then Luke and Leia catch up. Han Solo is saying that he hopes that the old man got the tractor beam down. We cut back to Obi-Wan and Darth Vader fighting. They're in front of this entrance. Stormtroopers go running off. That's when the group runs out to try and get into the Millennium Falcon. Luke slows down and calls out Ben and sees Obi-Wan look at him and then looks at Darth Vader, smiles wryly, puts his sword up, and seems to concentrate, and then Darth Vader swings the lightsaber, and down goes Ben's clothes. Luke screams out, Ben, and then the stormtroopers open fire on him. Darth Vader pats the clothes and notices there's nothing in there, and our group runs into the Millennium Falcon after Luke destroys a control panel, which causes the blast doors to close and stops Darth Vader from approaching. And Luke hears Ben's voice saying, Run, Luke, run! Han Solo starts up the controls, Chewie at his side, and manages to get the Falcon out of the Death Star. Luke's leaning on the hollow chessboard and just looks really bummed out. And then Leia comes and lays a blanket over him. And this is actually something I want to talk about. So 
often with these movies, they're old. They don't think through certain things. And so people love to rip it apart and make fun of it, which I totally get. It's an older movie. And when you've seen Star Wars 170 times, it's easy to pull apart things. But one criticism that I don't think is very fair is people are always talking about how Luke handles losing Obi-Wan, who he's only known at this point for a day probably a day and leia's comforting him even though leia lost an entire planet of people now they've had side stories to talk about this that i thought were pretty well done i have a book written for prince leia that's still canon that talks about why she handled it the way she did and there's a comic book series that i also read that does the same but i really think what this boils down to with leia is that she is royalty She is a politician. She was raised to have the stiff upper lip, if you will. And she's also a commander of the rebellion. So she's probably seen a lot of people die already. For her, this is part of the job. This is part of something that you have to go through. She is probably prepared to lose a lot of people for this battle. And so you saw her mourn Alderaan when it happened, but now she's moved on because she has to. It's not that she doesn't feel this stuff. It's just that she's pushed it to the back of her mind. Luke being all a sad sack after a person died today. Dude, if you saw somebody get cut in half right in front of you, you'd probably not be right either. So the Falcon keeps going. Han Solo runs back, he gets Luke's attention and says that they're not out of the clear. So they run up to the guns in the Falcon and they start blowing away TIE Fighters. They get hit by a little bit of fire from the TIE Fighters and so everybody's worried that the Falcon's going to fall apart. But Han assures them that she'll hold together and he's like, did you hear that baby? Hold together. And I like this because this is something that you see in fantasy over and over again. You've got the sea captain or pirate who's obsessed with this boat and in love with this boat. That's clearly Han Solo in this movie. He loves the Falcon. He would do anything for the Falcon. Luke hits a couple of targets. He gets really excited right after Han celebrates and Han tells him, don't get cocky, kid. And then finally, the last TIE fighter is there and Han blows it up with, for some reason, an extra large explosion. Han lets out a sigh. Everybody celebrates that they survived. C-3PO's covered in wires and thinks that he's melting, a la the Wicked Witch of the West. R2-D2, I guess, giggles in his own binary language. And then we see Grand Moff Tarkin asking if they made the jump in the hyperspace. And he says, are you sure the homing beacon is secure aboard their ship? I'm taking an awful risk, Vader. This had better work. Doesn't work so well. (laughs) Obviously, this is a plan so that they can find the Rebel base. That is why the Stormtroopers ran away. I feel really dumb that I never thought about that before. Uh, Princess Leia explains to Han that obviously they're tracking him. Han Solo doesn't believe that they can track his ship. And then he's wondering why the droid's so important because Leia says at least R2 is okay. And then Han immediately starts berating her about how he's not going to join her revolution. And all he wants is his reward. And she says, if money is all that you love, then that's what you'll receive. And you see this little look from Han where he clearly feels bad. And she says, your friend's quite a mercenary. I wonder if he really cares about anything or anybody to Luke. And Luke, of course, says, I care, which, by the way, never works when you, like, do the whiny thing at a girl to let her know that, hey, I'm pretty cool. No, doesn't work, Luke. So Luke says, so what do you think of her, Han? And he says, I'm trying not to, kid. And Luke says, good. And then Han sees an opportunity to screw with Luke. He says, still, she's got a lot of spirit. I don't know. What do you think? A princess and a guy like me? And then Luke says, no. (laughs) And... And Han just gives kind of a chuckle, and 
they fly off to the rebel base. Leia's greeted by somebody who tells her that they feared the worst when Alderaan was destroyed. And then they plug in R2-D2 into the computer, which shows his plans for the Death Star. Grand Moff Tarkin and Darth Vader realize that they've gone to Yavin, and so they plot a course for it. Meanwhile, the Rebels are preparing for an attack of the Death Star. They're talking about how big their defenses are and how only a small one-man fighter should be able to penetrate their outer defense. Somebody asks what good a fighter would do, and the guy giving the plan says that they don't look at the one-man fighters as a threat. So this is something that you see in myths and fairy tales a lot. There's something small that the big bad doesn't think can hurt them. And so they ignore him. Think of like the rabbit and the hare, for example, right? Like the hare is so fast. He's thinking that this creature who is so, so slow could never beat him in a race. And so he sleeps. And then the tortoise, sure enough, beats him in the race. Think of it like that. The Empire is essentially the hare. And by not paying attention to these little ships, they're allowing the rebel, the tortoise, to attack them. The old man mentions that the Death Star has enough firepower to outgun their entire fleet. But he says they've found a weakness in the Death Star. The approach won't be easy. He says they have to go straight down this trench and skim the surface to a point. The target area is only two meters wide. It's a small thermal exhaust port right below the main port. The shaft leads directly to the reactor system. A precise hit will start a chain reaction which should destroy the station. And only a precise hit will cause the station to get destroyed. And then so the guy next to Luke says that's impossible. And Luke says I used to bullseye womp rats. They're not much bigger than two meters. The guy dismisses everybody, tells them to get back to their ships. So Luke goes up to Han Solo and says, so you got your reward? Han tells him, yeah, that's right. I've got some old debts. I've got to pay off this stuff. And even if I didn't, you don't think I'd be a fool enough to stick around here with you. And then he propositions Luke and says, why don't you come with us? You're pretty good in a fight. We could use you. And Luke says, come on, why don't you take a look around? You know what's about to happen. You know what we're up against. They could use a good pilot like you. You're turning your back on them. And he says, what's the good of a reward if you can't use it? Besides, attacking that battle station ain't my idea of courage. It's more like suicide. And Luke kind of nods and says, all right, take care of yourself. I guess that's what you're best at, isn't it? And so this is interesting because it really is a role reversal of the two. Because you see Han look at Luke and he says, hey, Luke. May the force be with you. They look at each other kind of sadly. Luke walks off and Chewbacca looks like he's not happy with Han. And it's a role reversal because Han has always had the upper hand with those two. He's the one that sees him. He's been there before. Luke doesn't know what he's talking about. But now Luke's got the moral high ground on this. And Han does not. And he realizes he's wrong, but he just doesn't want to admit it. So Luke goes to talk to Leia He's depressed that Han's not going, and she says that he's got to follow his own path, and he once again says, I wish Ben was here. She kisses him on the cheek for the second time, and he looks at her very excited. Oh, boy. (laughs) So they get into their X-Wings. R2-D2 is dropped into Luke's X-Wing. They ask if he wants a different R2 unit, and he says, no, we've been through a lot. They tell Gold Squadron to get started. And kind of an interesting moment, C-3PO talking R2-D2 and says, you wouldn't want my life to get boring, would you? So I, I like that. It's one of the few moments with C-3PO where you can actually see that he really does care for R2. They're best friends and they kind of can't stand each other. And yet they are together and they do care about each other. So we see Leia is with all the other generals watching a giant clock. And we see the X-Wing fighters approaching the Death Star. 
along with a couple of Y-wings. The X-wings widen their wings. They get through the magnetic shield. Then they switch their deflectors on. One of them says, look at the size of that thing. And their leader tells them to cut the chatter. And they start flying over towards the trench. One of them cuts across the axis to try and draw fire. Luke, who has been dubbed Red 5, says he's going in. Somebody warns Luke to pull up. And his friend Biggs, who they don't really mention in this version of it, but I think they add him back in in the special edition, asks Luke if he's okay. He says he is. One of the generals comes to Darth Vader to tell him that they've got a small lineup of pilots attacking the Death Star. So Darth Vader says they're going to have to fight them ship to ship. And he runs towards his TIE fighter. We see the overweight X-Wing pilot who kind of looks like me, to be honest. It's weird. There's one called Biggs and there's one who's kind of chubby with a beard. But they're not the same guy. So you put them together. That's me, unfortunately. I'm not the fun guy with the force. I'm two random X-Wing pilots who people hardly know. Anyway, so Luke starts drawing fire again. The command base warns them that there's some fighters coming their way. And we see six TIE fighters swoop in. One of the X-Wings gets hit and it explodes. Biggs has a TIE fighter that's right on his tail. And then Luke swoops in behind them, manages to get the TIE fighter in his sight and blows it up. Another TIE fighter swoops in towards Luke and hits the ship, but Luke's okay. Tells R2 to hang on. Luke can't seem to shake the TIE fighter. And then, of course, our hero Wedge swoops in and saves Luke. Darth Vader comes in. He's got a unique TIE fighter that's got kind of curved wings instead of straight ones. And he's got two TIE fighters flanking him. He tells them to maintain positions. One of the Y-wings turns on his targeting computer, heads right over the port and fires and misses. He turns on the targeting computer, but he gets no chance to open fire on the port because Darth Vader destroys the three of them. The general who warned Darth Vader about the small fighters comes over and warns Grand Moff Tarkin that should they evacuate, and he says, evacuate in a time of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. And the remaining X-Wings dive down to the trench to try and take a chance at the port. Another guy's in range, and so he brings up his targeting computer. He tells them to hold off the TIE fighters for a little bit. He's almost there. One of his partners gets blown up. The other one's saying he can't hold them, and then he gets blown up. So we're just left with the guy with the target. He goes to fire, and he pulls the trigger just a little too late. We actually see the Death Star shake a bit, and stormtroopers flying all over, but it didn't go in. It just impacted on the surface. So another X-Wing lost her starboard engine. And then he gets hit by Darth Vader and he crashes on the surface of the Death Star. So now we're left with Biggs and Wedge. And this is where they hint at the relationship because he asks Luke if he'll be able to get in there. And he says it's just like Beggar's Canyon back home. Biggs is covering Luke. There's a stabilizer down on Luke's X-Wing, and so he has R2 repairing it. We see Darth Vader and his two TIE fighters are approaching. He hits Wedge. Wedge goes flying off, apologizing because there's nothing more he can do. And then Darth Vader sees Biggs in a sight and blows him up. And Luke takes a second to realize that his friend just died. We see everybody's tense on the Death Star. Everybody's tense in Yavin base. Luke's got his targeting program on. Darth Vader's trying to get Luke into his sights. And then we hear Obi-Wan saying, Use the Force, Luke. Let go, Luke. Darth Vader's realizing this... The Force is strong with him, and Obi-Wan's prodding one more time and saying, Luke, trust me. 
And so Luke turns his computer off at Yavin base. They realize that he turned his computer off. And so they're asking him if everything's all right. He assures them everything's all right. And so he is going to try and make this shot without his targeting computer. Darth Vader's getting closer. He hits R2 on the top of the dome. Luke yells out that he's lost R2. The Death Star gets Yavin base in range and they're firing up the laser. All the buttons are lighting up. We see Darth Vader. It looks like he like tightens a screw whenever he's about to hit somebody, but he gets Luke locked in. And then all of a sudden, the TIE fighter to his right explodes. Darth Vader goes, what? (laughs) It's Han Solo. He showed up to try and help out Luke. And so he clears it out so that Luke can take his shot. Luke fires two shots. They go down into the exhaust port. And then right as the Death Star is pulling the lever to activate the beam, the Death Star blows up. Han says, great shot, kid. One in a million. And Luke hears Ben saying, remember, the Force will be with you always. We see Darth Vader's TIE fighter is flying off in a spin, and then he finally rights it, and he keeps flying away. And then we see the Millennium Falcon with three X-Wings fly back to Yavin base. Luke jumps out of his X-Wing. Everybody runs up to hug him. Of course, he takes a giant hug from Princess Leia. And then Luke comes up, and they hug. And Han said he wasn't going to let him take all the credit. And then they see R2 looks pretty messed up. And so C-3PO is worried that if they need circuits or gears that he'd be willing to sacrifice them to help out R2. But they say, don't worry about it. We'll take him to Lowe's. So then we go and see Luke and Han and Chewie are walking out of a stone structure. And they're approaching a dais which has Princess Leia on it. And she awards them medals. Well, she awards two of them medals. And the internet will have a field day with this for decades. And before we get into this whole Chewie didn't get a medal thing, because people are always pointing that out, Chewie's a sentient being, why doesn't he get a medal? He was co-piloting with Han on the Falcon. So let's keep in mind, off to the side is C-3PO and R2-D2. Dude, they never give droids medals, ever. Isn't that kind of messed up? Like, that's kind of messed up, right? Like, why don't you give them medals? Do droids not want medals? Is it like handing somebody a piece of flesh? I don't know. But if we're going to make a big deal out of this whole Chewbacca didn't get a medal thing, maybe we should make a big deal out of C-3PO and R2-D2 didn't get a medal. Dude, R2 got shot in battle. Where's his purple heart? I'm just saying, where's R2's purple heart? Anyway, so we see the credits come up. Everything's happy. R2's bouncing back and forth. Seems happy enough without a medal, but that's probably just because he's alive. But C-3PO, I mean, give C-3PO a medal, man. So that is the end of A New Hope. So let's talk about how this movie did when it went out in theaters. Charles Lippincott was this guy who worked within Fox, and he used his ties to sci-fi audiences to promote Star Wars. So he put out a novelization of Star Wars before it came out. He made a deal with Marvel and started comic books for Star Wars. He did everything he possibly could to get awareness up for Star Wars. This is something that really hadn't been done before, and he was at the forefront of it, and it's a strategy that they still use today. Uh, Ash Ashley Boone Jr. was this guy who was an executive up in Fox who knew that the movie had to bankroll $33 million in theaters to make a profit because it costed $11 million. You figure it probably costed another 11 or so for advertising, and then you've got the cost of making the reels and everything. So because he knew they had to make $33 million, which was a giant chunk of change in 1977, he opened the film on a Wednesday and started showing movies at 10 a.m., which was very unconventional. This was back in the days when the studios owned all the movie theaters still so they could do things like this for the most part there was only a handful of independent 
theaters around. Another thing that Ashley Boone Jr. did was he tied Star Wars to The Other Side of Midnight. The Other Side of Midnight was a much-anticipated movie that nobody remembers anything about because Star Wars came out at the same time. But all the theaters that didn't want Star Wars were told, if you don't grab Star Wars, we're not giving you The Other Side of Midnight. So they did everything they could to get this movie in front of audiences' eyes. And of course, it opened huge. It opened so big. It was the biggest opening of all time. Jaws had happened a couple years earlier and it just shredded the box office. Star Wars also did this. It wound up making $307 million domestic, which was crazy back in those days. $503 million worldwide. This was off an $11 million budget. That means it multiplied its budget by almost 46 times. It became the highest grossing movie of all time, which Lucas snatched from Steven Spielberg with Jaws, which is pretty fun. And even more fun is that when Star Wars finally got dethroned, it was because Spielberg snatched the title back with E.T. in 1983. So Star Wars held the title for six years. And just a little postscript about that, since we've talked about Spielberg here and there. When Spielberg got knocked off for E.T., it was for his own movie, Jurassic Park. So Spielberg, pretty safe to say, is the king of the theaters. But Star Wars, probably king of the franchises. So we know it made a ton of money. We know people liked it. How did the news cover it? Enter in the hut, plug that HDMI cable into M3 so we can listen to the montage. Good try. So I guess you're banking that he doesn't know Hutties, huh? Slimo! I guess he does know Hutties. If you don't know what a hundred-year-old Wookiee is, he or it is seen here on the left, chances are you're going to find out. Douglas Kiker reports. Star Wars. It is more than just a successful movie, it is a box office phenomenon. The film is breaking attendance records all over the country. Not since Jaws have so many people stood in line to see a movie. Star Wars cost $9 million to produce. It will bring in at least 10 times that amount. As a result, the price of 20th Century Fox stock has doubled in the last two weeks. With Star Wars, 20th Century Fox does indeed have a winner. The old Fox Studios badly needed one. On Wall Street, the company's stock took off almost as fast as the movie Spaceship. But for the real family entertainment, it is most sublime. You'll have to wait till after Christmas when Star Wars opens in London. Even by the standards of Hollywood, a place where nothing succeeds like excess, Star Wars is a phenomenon. It only opened in America at the end of May, but already it's the biggest box office hit in cinema history, having grossed the best part of $200 million in the United States alone. The attendance at Star Wars has been almost astronomic. Queues are still forming. In America, more money was taken at box offices in one week than for the prestigious Jaws. In London, after a month, almost 600,000 flocked to see the film an all-time record. The film, which has already outstripped the legendary Jaws as a money spinner in America, tells an outer space war story with strange monsters, robots and special effects all made in British studios. In the long lines in front of the big city theaters across the country, the moviegoers wait for six hours or more. They are waiting to escape. At the box office, they are buying a few hours out of this world. The film is called Star Wars. It and other recent Hollywood offerings are obviously giving the public what it wants. Total escape cinema. We've got many people who've had their fill of telephone bills and all other aspects of reality are finding a futuristic way of putting their problems aside for a while. It's old-fashioned, escapist entertainment, pure and simple, 
with no moral, no message. And it appears this is what just about everybody in the country is in the mood for. Perhaps one important reason for this immense popularity is that it somehow combines elements of all the best-loved themes of romantic adventure, from the Arabian Nights to the Western, from the Knights of the Round Table to science fiction and space fantasy. Alec Guinness, as a sort of elderly space-age Sir Galahad, is the best-known actor in the film, the juvenile leads being played by Harrison Ford, Mark Hamill, and Eddie Fisher's daughter Carrie as the kidnapped princess. But the real stars, I fancy, will turn out to be two robots, known as C-3PO and R2-D2. There are no sex scenes in Star Wars. Unlike Jaws, it doesn't frighten people. It's just an old-fashioned cowboy movie set in space with mind-boggling special effects. In the classic westerns, it's the good guys versus the bad guys, sometimes a pair of good guys, one experienced and a little cynical, the other a tenderfoot, a kid. In Star Wars, their names are Han Solo and Luke Skywalker. The bad guys always are a rough, tough, sinister-looking bunch, and never more so than in Star Wars. The damsel in distress. That's Princess Leia, who is held captive by the bad guys. Sometimes the good guys have a sidekick who provides the comic relief. Come on. In Star Wars, the sidekicks are two robots and Chewbacca, who somehow knows how to pilot a spaceship. The climax of every good cowboy movie is the final showdown between the good guys and the bad guys. The only difference in Star Wars is that the characters ride spaceships instead of horses. A cowboy movie set in space. That's Star Wars. What is the attraction of Star Wars? Who can say? There have been lavish spectaculars before. Perhaps it's because this one takes the best from all the rest. Color, breathless excitement, fantasy. And because we on this planet are already touching space with a tentative finger, more reality than we care to admit. Some fans just can't get enough of it. Really? I have a friend who's seen it four times already. One critic calls Star Wars just a big, dumb flick. But, like most reviewers, he points out the public is in a mood for fanciful, pure entertainment and adventure. There's nothing heavy, no big message in these kinds of pictures. Star Wars is simply a cosmic comic book movie, one which really moves. There are such basics as corny dialogue reminiscent of the Saturday serials of the 1930s. Don't worry. Show all together. Plot basics, like a captured princess in peril and in serious need of rescue. Today, moviegoers of all ages seem to want to get involved, cheering the good guys in white and hissing the bad guys, costumed ominously dark. Star Wars this year is attracting even larger audiences. But whether it's these or other escapist movies, when they emerge from the theaters, the audiences are happy. Just ask. Sure, I love it. That's my favorite kind of entertainment. Why? Look at this. Yeah. I'd love to escape from that. Yeah, I mean, we've just had so many kind of burned out on all the social commentary movies we've had. There's no doubt about it, the big movie makers see the trend. Now I guess what we're going to find is the combination of Rocky and, and Star Wars. You know, I've got a, a movie that reminds me of Rocky, Star Wars, Easy Rider, uh, Sound of Music, and all put into one, you know, an attempt to try to chase the winner. Everything was fantastic. Whoever wrote it had a fantastic imagination. I think it was good. Just good? No, fantastic. It's exciting, but I didn't like the bit when the man chopped off um, the person's arm. Why not? In the because there was blood. Oh, but don't we like blood? No. Uh, well, we wanted to get in and see it on the only unreserved show, and it's booked through on the book all shows right until March, and we couldn't 
afford to wait that long. And the prestige of being able to save seeing Star Wars is something akin to royalty, really. Star Wars is a modern day fairy tale, which I really like because it took me on an adventure. I really understood robot R2-D2's feelings when he was scared and when he was crying. I especially liked the special effects, especially the moving monster chess figures. My favorite part was when the stars, Luke Skywalker, Princess Leia, Han Solo, Chewbacca the Wookiee, were stuck in the garbage compactor. And just as they were going to be squished, the wall stopped moving. I liked the film, but there are some parts that were hard to understand, such as how a simple boy from the country can fly a spaceship and shoot a gun and hit right on target. And that Princess Lee was sure bossy. For the first time in cinema history, set and costumes from a screen spectacular have become museum pieces even before the first showing. At London Science Museum, youngsters of every age are drawn to this cavalcade of way out stars. This has been the biggest build-up of any motion picture. Characters like C-3PO and R2-D2 promise to become as familiar as Snow White and Mickey Mouse. In true Hollywood tradition, they bid to become the screen's first lovable robots. British actors include Alec Guinness as Ben Kenobi and Peter Cushing. Mark Hamill plays Luke Skywalker in the six million pound epic. Ironically enough, Star Wars was turned down by two studios before 20th Century Fox agreed to back it without too much initial enthusiasm and with a comparatively modest budget of six million pounds. Even more ironically, most of the spectacular sets and the live action scenes, which are about half the strength of the picture, were created by British technicians at Elstree Studios. But of course, none of the monstrous profits will come back to support our own local film industry. In fact, the overwhelming success of the picture surprised everybody, including Fox, the producer, Gary Kurtz and the director George Lucas had they been able to predict it we should already be inundated with commercial spin-offs such as toy models of R2-D2 and C-3PO they won't be here in time for Christmas but ray guns, spaceships, t-shirts, posters and Star Wars wallpaper, bubble baths and breakfast foods should be on the market pretty soon as one Fox executive put it it's not so much a film it's more an industry and the man chiefly responsible for both film and by extension industry is the writer and director George Lucas who spent years writing and rewriting the script until he felt it was good enough to go into production and the script, which is like everyone's nostalgic memory of glorious Saturday morning matinees, is quite as important to the overall film as the special effects. George Lucas is best known, or was until now, for American graffiti, but I suppose the initial seed of Star Wars was sown in his first picture, a science fiction story called THX 1138. It's really quite irritating to think that even while he was making that picture, George Lucas was already mulling over ideas for Star Wars, and now five years, nearly two films later, at the age of 32, he's so rich he need never work again. Oh, well, it's no good being jealous he's a good director and deserves his success critics overwhelmingly love star wars uh it wasn't universal one critic of note pauline kale of the new york times didn't enjoy the movie here's an excerpt of a write-up the loudness the smash and grab editing the relentless pacing drive every idea from your head for young audiences star wars is like getting a box of cracker jacks which is all prizes this is writer-director George Lucas's own film subject to no business interference, yet it's a film that's totally uninterested in anything that doesn't connect with a mass audience. There's no breather in the picture, no lyricism, the only attempt at beauty is in the double sunset. It's enjoyable on its own terms, but it's exhausting too. It's like taking a pack of kids to the circus, an hour 
are into it, children are saying they're ready to see it all over again. That's because it's an assemblage of spare parts. It has no emotional grip. So that is not a great review. <laughs> Clearly, Polly and Kale, legendary critic, did not like Star Wars, probably doesn't go down great in history. But here is Roger Ebert, probably our most famous critic. So here's an excerpt from Roger Ebert's review for the Chicago Sun-Times. The movie relies on the strength of pure narrative and the most basic storytelling form known to man, The Journey. All of the best tales we remember from our childhoods have to do with our heroes setting out to travel down roads filled with danger and hoping to find treasure or heroism at the journey's end. In Star Wars, George Lucas takes a simple and powerful framework into outer space, and that's an inspired thing to do because we no longer have maps on Earth that warn, here be dragons. We can't fall off the edge of the map as Columbus would, and we can't find new continents of prehistoric monsters or lost tribes ruled by immortal goddesses. Not on Earth anyway, but anything is possible in space. And Lucas goes right ahead and shows us very nearly everything. We get involved very quickly because the characters in Star Wars are so strongly and simply drawn that they have so many small foibles and large feudal hopes for us to identify with. And then Lucas does an interesting thing. As he sends his heroes off to cross the universe and do battle with the forces of Darth Vader, the evil empire, and the awesome Death Star, he gives us lots of special effects. Yes, ships passing into hyperspace, alien planets, and infinity of stars, but we also get a wealth of strange living creatures, and Lucas correctly guesses that they'll be more interesting for us than any intergalactic hardware. Dude, so accurate. Roger Ebert is so on with that review. Whether you like A New Hope or not, whether you you're a fan who maybe grew up with the prequels or the sequel trilogy and you can't go back and watch his original movies because you think that they're too old. Roger Ebert acutely saw what this franchise was and what it could be and what the lifeblood of it was. And he wrote it down in this review and he was absolutely right. Nobody at this point knew how big Star Wars would get. They knew it was huge, but they didn't know how big it was going to get. Nobody could know. Nothing had ever done anything like this. And so I think Roger Ebert absolutely tapped into something there. So this is probably a good place to stop. Next week, we're going to talk about Spectre of the Mind, the backdoor pilot for Empire Strike back that never was to be but it was a novel and we're gonna talk about it so this is big saying may the force be with you Chivopa, Chubo, Crespo. If you want that job at Hollow Net News someday, you better get to it. Aniki. It's okay, M3. She's just cleaning out your port. He says he's sorry for shocking you. He won't do it again. Aniki. Slimo! Maybe I should brush up on my binary. We have so many shows on the Not Safer Network. Download the entire first season of the show Not Afraid of the Star Wars fanbase, but maybe it should be? Jedi Master's Degree. Two movies enter and only one movie leaves. Listen to Box Office Battle. Learn the history of television one show at a time with the podcast In Syndication. Music, anime, pop culture, movies, TV show, and the random babbling of two dudes who need to find something better to do. Check out A Feast of Geeks. The podcast that's perfectly described with its title, Movies with Wrestlers. 
and download the entire first season of the radio drama about a serial killer ripped from the pages of a hundred-year-old cookbook, A Thousand Ways to Please a Husband.